You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Now's the time to start trying to reposition, you know, portfolios potentially. You know, after we've had this big run-up here, you know, previously, and, and the markets got very overbought, and again, just a bit of a recap here in the newsletter over the last few weeks, we talked about, you know, raising some cash, reducing risk, adding some hedges, doing those type of things, just kind of the normal risk management. And this is really kind of the key thing. Right. And and we wrote about this several times, you know, in the newsletter as well, which, you know, all those are posted, by the way, if, if you don't believe what I'm saying, you know, you can always go to the website and check it out. It's go to realinvestmentadvice.com, click on the newsletter link on the right hand side is the archives and you can go back. We keep all of our newsletters posted for you. So you go back and double check us. Right. You know, is what we said right, wrong. You know, sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong. And, you know, we try to be as accurate as we can. But, you know, sometimes we we miss the ball. It's OK. But that's the whole point about risk management, right? So, you know, we're investing capital and we're trying to make sure that we maximize the return on that capital. And, and we can't always be right because we're guessing, right? This, and this is the funny thing about the, the financial markets. And we've talked about this before is that individuals, they claim, they say, oh, I'm investing in the stock market. No, you're not. I'm an investor, right? No, you're not. I'm a long-term investor. No, I'm not. And let me give you a good example of this. Got an email yesterday. So guy emails me, and I get these a lot, right? This just happens to be a, a recent example. I get an email yesterday, and, and the gentleman says, hey, I bought this company for the yield. It's a long-term yield play. But I bought this company for a long-term hold because it had a 16% yield. It's been going down in price ever since, and I'm not sure what to do with it now. Well, if the yield on the 10-year treasury is one and three quarters percent or less, right? Right now, we're about one and a half percent on the 10-year treasury, and something's paying you a 16% yield. What's wrong with that picture? You don't get paid 16% for no risk. And remember, when he bought the stock, he says, I'm buying this for a long-term hold, right? I'm not, gonna, I'm not ever going to sell this. I'm just going to collect 16% on it from here to the day I die, right? That's awesome. Problem is, is that you don't get yield. What you get is the cash dividend. And in this case, it paid 75 cents a share. Now, if it's paying 75 cents, has 16% yield, it tells you this is a very low-priced stock, right? It's trading about $5. So immediate red flags, right, pop up everywhere. Uh, you know, when, when something's paying you a yield that is way above what the 10-year treasury is giving you, there's a reason for that because there's risk. There's financial risk to the investment. So that's the first red flag. Second red flag is stocks trading about $5. Okay, that's, that's another problem. Very low-priced stocks are low-priced generally for a reason. The other problem, of course, is that whenever you make an investment, and this, is, this goes back to what I was just talking about, being an investor or a speculator, you're not an investor in the financial markets. You are a speculator. You are simply buying something in the hopes that it's going to, to grow for you in the future at some point. And, and, and if, that, if you're hoping for something... If you're betting on something, right, I'm betting on higher prices in the future. That's why I'm buying something today. I'm going to bet on a higher price in the future. 
if that happens, that's great. But it's a bet, right? And, and, and as soon as you take the word bet and throw it in the middle of, of the sentence of, of putting money to work in the capital markets, you're a speculator because that's what you do at a poker table. And your odds are about the same. And in this case, a good example, you know, he was making a bet on a company that it would continue to pay 16% on this particular investment, right? And again, you don't get yield. What you get is the dividend. He, so he was betting that the company would continue to pay him 75 cents a year, a year on the shares that he owns. He could buy ExxonMobil and get $3 and change in annual dividends. Much stronger company. But people get attracted by that big yield, right? Oh, I'm going to get 16%. That's, it's, that's not the way you invest. But it's a bet. He was betting on this to happen. Well, the stock lost 50% of its value. So the, the point is, is that, yeah, great, I'm getting a 16% yield. Now I've lost 50% of my money. And what happens to most companies is when they're paying a very high yield and the stock goes down a whole bunch and the company's in financial trouble, what's the company first, first thing company, what's the first thing the company does? Cuts its, cuts its dividend. So now you've lost 50% of your money and you lost your dividend. So what was the point now? So the point is, is that we're all speculators. We are not investors. Warren Buffett's an investor. If you invest in a private company and you can go in and determine the direction and course of that company and, and determine its sales and its, and, and its marketing, and those, that's being an investor, right? You're in that long term. You're going to grow that business. You're a small business owner. You are an investor in that business, because you were invested in that business to make sure it grows. But in the financial markets, you're always a speculator. You are never more than a speculator unless you can start acquiring 10 and 20% of a company and control its outcome. So always keep that in the back of your mind. When you're, when you're investing in anything in the markets, the first thing that you invest in, when you invest that first leg of capital in any stock, the first, the first thing you should know is exactly where you're going to sell it if things go wrong. How do I get out of it if things go wrong? And how, and how much money am I willing to lose if this bet goes wrong? Then let's go back to poker table real quick. I've got a really poor hand, but I'm going to bet on it anyway because I think everybody else has a worse hand. But I'm not going to bet a lot, right? I control my bet. Same thing with investing. When, you, when you're investing on, on a stock and... It's exceedingly overbought, overvalued, extended, not a great company, but you're going to bet on it anyway. Control your bet. How much do you put into it? How much risk do you take? How big of a position do you take within your portfolio? And then if you make that bet, where are you getting out of it if it goes wrong? Am I willing to lose 10%, 20%? How much am I willing to lose? And put that stop in there and make sure you honor it. So when you hit that point, you're out. Control risk. That's what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. Taking profits, reducing the size of our exposure to equities. Things that had run up a whole lot, we reduced those sizes back down to target weights. In every, in every position in our portfolio, we have a maximum amount of size that that position can take up relative to the amount of risk that we're taking in that position. So if it's a highly volatile stock or if it has... You know, if it's a momentum type investment, we reduce the size that we're willing to allocate to that position. So if our maximum size of any position is 5% of the portfolio, maybe the maximum size of a, a more volatile, risky investment is 3 
percent of the portfolio. Worst case scenario, something goes horribly wrong. Stock opens up at zero the next day. We lose 3% of our portfolio, but we don't completely damage the outcome to our investors. So again, it's all about risk mitigation. It's about managing that because we're speculators. We're simply making bets on the markets. And so, you know, what we talked about over the last couple of weeks was sizing that risk down because we expected that, you know, we had a very hot hand in October. We were very happy about that. Getting into early November, things were very overbought. And just like when you're in a hot streak at a poker table, you know, you're getting hand after hand is just coming your way and you're winning. Well, that, that hot streak is going to end. And this is how the house always winds up winning because people don't know when to leave the table after they have a series of, of a hot streak. And then it goes cold and they keep betting, trying to get that hot streak back, and they wind up giving back all of their gains. That's the same thing that happens with investors. You know, all the gains that we made in October are now gone for the most part. So now what do you do? Now you're just trying to get back to even. So by taking profits and locking in some of those gains, now we've got capital to invest. And that's the thing that we want to start talking about is, you know, where do we start looking for opportunity now? Because we knew this correction was coming. Well, I, let, me, let me rephrase that. We don't, we don't know anything. We, we made a guess that a correction was coming based on a series of things that were going on. The markets were very overbought. We had, you know, an internal breadth was deteriorating. As I said earlier, the number of stocks above the 50 and 200-day moving average were going down, etc., so those are, the, those are the problems that we saw coming. And so we could make an educated guess by looking at those technical internals, you know, that technical voodoo we talked about yesterday, that black magic that we talked about yesterday, right? That's that technical bias. And all that is is just telling us what the psychology of the market. There was something kind of going on with the markets that we were going, you know, it just doesn't feel right. And so we reduced that. Now a lot of that's been washed out. Things are getting very oversold. Sentiment's getting very negative, and statistically and seasonality-wise, the end of the year tends to be fairly decent. And that should suggest that we should get a bit of a rally here over the next couple of weeks as we head into the end of the year. And, and, then, and that's obviously something we want to try to take advantage of, but do so carefully. So when we come back from the break, we'll see, I'll see if I can get Michael Leibowitz back on the line. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk about that and how to position for this. So... Anyway, uh, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Again, all of our blogs, our research papers are all there for you. And the reason, look, the reason that we publish stuff every day is to let you know what we're thinking and what we're doing. And, and that's basically how we do research. These are the things that we're looking at to research what we're doing for our clients and our portfolios and our money here at RA Advisors. And we publish it. It's all for free. And it's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Be right back after the break. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Rose Lance Roberts. So I want to bring on the show right now Michael Leibwood, CFA, who's the man solely responsible for the baseball strike. Mike, welcome to the show this morning. How are you? Good. JP, one of our followers on YouTube, Godzilla didn't get the best of me. I'm back. I know, right? Uh, apparently, uh, I don't know what you did to upset your wife, but apparently you've been sleeping in the basement for far too long. Your beard's really starting to grow out here, so... 
I, you keep telling us we're going to have a Santa Claus rally. I got to get the beard going. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, you know, as I said, uh, you know, apparently the uh, Major League Baseball players were listening to our uh, show the other last week when you were talking about how that, you know, employees now have pricing pressure and they can kind of go in and demand, you know, better wages and this type of stuff. And, uh, well, they showed up in Dallas for their meeting that lasted seven minutes and they walked out. And now the baseball, Major League Baseball is now on strike. I guess that's all your fault. <laughs> it's all my fault. Now that the Nationals aren't very good, it doesn't really bother me. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. You had your moment of glory, right? I did. That was fun. Uh, so, all right, a couple of things here. I was talking a little bit about, um, you know, the market this morning, of course. We've had this sell-off over the last few days. Of course, you know, the media wants to attribute this to, you know, the Fed and it's Omni, uh, you know, Omicron or Omicron, however you want to pronounce it. Um, but, you know, we've been talking about a potential correction here in the markets for the last really two, three, four weeks. Um, markets were very over, overbought, extended, and so now we're going through this correction process. And, you know, before we get start talking a little bit about, you know, kind of where to start looking for opportunity, just want kind of want to get your thoughts on the sell-off. And, you know, here we are sitting back at the 50-day moving average. You know, is there anything here that's kind of concerning you near term? There are things that concern me. You know, we talk about them all the time. But but you said that, you know, earlier in the in, in the show, you said it correctly. On last Friday, the market sold off because of Omicron. And that was the excuse. Then we come in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Omicron is much less of a threat than we thought on Friday. On Friday, we thought we were going all the way back to March 2020. We're locked down and can't breathe and, you know, all this crazy stuff. But now now it's Fed Powell is shifting to a more hawkish tone. So, again, the market is try is putting these factors, these excuses to explain what's going on. Just like we have to, you know, like you said, we have to explain everything in life. Yeah. We want to understand what's going on and whether the narrative to explain it is true or not true or partially true. And look, they're partially true. Sure. The world, look, the, the stock market doesn't want to see even a slight shutdown of certain economies, even if they're outside of the United States. Right. Mm -hmm. And Powell shifting is a big deal. Right. And, and we can talk about that. But this has been coming. He's been signaling this. And so that's, you know, if you ask my concern, it's not Omicron, it's it's Powell shifting to a more hawkish tone, caring more about inflation, a little bit less about employment signals that they're going to taper a little bit quicker and potentially get to rate hikes maybe in March instead of June or July. So, you know, it's interesting, though, and as we talk about this, you know, there's some there are some asset classes that you think would be performing better. Again, you know, the one thing that you know, we've noted before is that, you know, there are certain asset classes that tend to perform when there's a risk off bias in the market. You know, one of those is bonds and and on the long end of the curve. Right. So the 10 year, the 20 year, the 30 year bond, um, those yields have, have have been coming down fairly sharply here over the last couple of weeks, as you would expect. Right. You have that risk off rotation, money coming out of risk, going into safety. So bonds have been performing better because of that. But another area is that, you know, we get a lot of questions about. And, you know, we've we've avoided, you know, this one sector to a large degree. We've we've dabbled in it a couple of times over the last couple of years on intermittent rallies, but we haven't hung around very long because it just simply really hasn't been performing as been gold. And, you know, you would think that with this kind of this risk off rotation in the markets that gold would be performing better 
but you know it had a little run up to around you know uh, 1850 or so, and has now given all that back up. It's back down to 1775 yesterday on the spot price. So, you know what's going on with gold that you know it's not you know kind of been really performing here and and has not been a uh, you know has, has really underperformed the financial markets over the last year in particular. Right, it hasn't been the place to go for inflation fears. Right, but what it has done is done exactly. It's followed exactly what we would have thought it would have done based on what's going on with interest rates and inflation expectations. So there's a factor out there called real rates. And what real rates are, are interest rates less the rate of expected inflation. And that really tells you how much the Fed is affecting markets. So right now, real rates are negative 1% or more for 10 years. So if you buy a 10-year Treasury note and you get a yield of, let's just say, 150 and expectations for inflation are minus 250, you're actually going to lose 1% a year mm-hmm. of purchasing power. Right. So that's what real rates tell you. And there's a very strong correlation between real rates. The more negative real rates get, the higher gold goes and vice versa. So when you had, we've had these wild swings in both inflation expectations and treasury yields, and what we're finding is that gold is reacting in line with those changes. It's just not what everyone's expecting. Now, we'll, you know, we, we have a Fed now that's becoming a little more hawkish. It's Powell, it's, Clarita, it's the vice chair Clarita, and it's men, many other members of the board. So what they're saying is that we're going to be doing a little bit less QE. We're going to taper. We may raise rates. That should push real rates higher, which is a negative for gold. So, you know, you can watch all the inflation narratives, you know, all these things that the gold bugs tend to follow. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, for the last five years, it's been real rates that have driven the price of gold. Right. And, and real rates are, are you know, at, at some very low levels. I mean, we haven't seen real rates this low in like 20 years or something. I, I the, There was a chart out recently. And I mean, it's been a very long time I, we've seen real rates at this level, right? I think the 70s, 80s yeah. was the last time so, you saw you know, that because like, like yields didn't go up as much bit. as inflation. Right. <laughs> But, you know, uh, but again, you know, this is, you know, this is one of those those problems here. We have, you know, rising inflation. People have been buying gold and an expectation that it was going to hedge them against inflation. And we wrote an article about this recently on the website saying that, you know, there are times in history where gold has been a very good inflation hedge. And there's also times where it hasn't been. And this is one of those times where gold has been a very poor hedge for inflation. But, you know, you know, if we're looking for opportunity, and again, you know, this is, I, I think, the important thing about portfolio management, and we talk about, you know, managing risk, and, you know, that's what we talked about in the last segment, is, you know, markets have now gotten fairly oversold. Markets were looking to open up this morning. That that initial kind of opening is now starting to weaken here a bit. We're still going to open on the positive side, but a lot weaker than what futures were initially predicting. You know, we're probably not through this entire mutual fund distribution process just yet. There's probably some more selling to go here over the next few days. So, you know, a little bit more sloppiness in the market, a little bit more volatility, certainly not surprising. But, you know, one area of the market that's starting to look really interesting here from an overbought, I mean, from an oversold condition has been energy. And, you know, we'd recently had reduced exposure to energy stocks here. Uh, You and I have been talking the last couple of days about looking for some opportunity there. What are your thoughts? They've actually, a lot of the energy stocks have hung in really well, too. 
right? They haven't been getting the price of oil has just been getting clobbered, right? It's been down three, four, five, six, seven percent some of these days. And the oil stocks are not falling nearly as much. If you look at graphs, they're kind of holding their own. They're off from their highs, but they're not off nearly as much as the price of oil. So that's a positive sign. Mm -hmm. um, but we need and there's look, there's a lot of political pressure on oil right now. Right. And other things going on, such as OPEC, right? Well, OPEC cut production because all these countries are releasing oil reserves. What, you know, you got the demand side, the supply side, how will a stronger dollar affect the price of oil? <clears throat> so there's a lot of balls in the air, uh, but, but it's encouraging that the prices of the oil stocks have hung in really well. And I agree with you, Lance. I think that if oil can stabilize, at a minimum, the mm -hmm. oil price, the stocks of oil companies will probably outperform the market here going forward. Well, you know, and one thing, too, that's interesting is, you know, the you know, there's been a lot of pressure on Biden and the administration in general to get oil prices down because, you know, that's, you know, leading to inflationary pressures and everybody's, you know, upset about the price of gas at, at the pump and. You know, what's what'll be interesting to see is is that, you know, this decline in oil prices probably won't reflect much to gas at the at the pump. And this is the mistake that the Biden administration was making by telling the DOJ to investigate oil companies for price gouging. You know, these these prices are set by NYMEX, um, by speculators and hedgers, in, uh, you know, on the New York Mercantile Exchange. And this sell off recently is not unexpected. We wrote an article on this on October the 15th talking about how hedgers were way too long oil. There was going to be a correction. Well, now here it is. And, and now I think we're at a good position uh, investment-wise to take advantage of some discounts in prices. Um, you know, another area that's, been, that's kind of been beat up here lately, technologies, taken uh, some pretty rough shots over the last few days. I think a lot of that is, is really going down to mutual fund distributions. A lot of mutual funds had a lot of gains in technology stocks that they were also overweight technology in terms of portfolio allocations and from their investment policy standpoint they've got to rebalance portfolios and take those gains and distribute those for the year so i think a lot of the selling and tech is is coming from that but you know technology's been the strong player of the year and you know do you think that there's you know some opportunity maybe in some of these tech stocks that have really gotten beaten up Yes, and especially the smaller ones, not the Microsofts, Apples. I mean, Apple was up, what, 2 3% the other day when the market was down a couple percent, 1.5%, yeah. whatever it was. So I think you have to look beyond the big names and, and, and kind of the high, the recent high flyers, the NVIDIAs, the, the chip companies in general, and look below the surface at some of these companies that were up significantly earlier in the year, given up a lot of gains but have great technologies that have technologies that people are using. Yeah. And uh, those are the companies that have the potential that have been sold off pretty drastically. And, you know, assuming the market can get its feet again, they have a lot of upside potential here. Then we'll come back with Michael Leibowitz. We'll talk a little bit about ARC springing a leak as well, specifically to tech stocks and, and more. Coming up right after the break with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Real Science Roberts. Uh, Michael Leewood's joining me. Talk a little bit about markets, money, investments, and the sell-off. And again, you know, I don't think we're done with the sell-off just yet. What will be critically important over the next two days is to making sure that we hold support here between the 50 and the 100-day moving average. They're basically sitting on top of each other. So there's a lot of support for the markets at these levels, but it uh, doesn't mean the selling is over yet. Now, 
if we break that 100-day moving average, it's an entirely different story. And we'll be talking about something much deeper at that point if that occurs. So I don't expect that to happen. Markets are getting fairly oversold, fairly fearful. We'll probably get a, a bit of a rally here. So, you know, we'll want to use that opportunistically um, as we go into the end of the year. But one thing I wanted to touch on, though, is that, you know, early this year, and I, actually I should go into last year, ARC was the rage. ARC is the, and if you don't know who ARC is, uh, that's Kathy Wood. And she was being held as one of the most innovative uh, portfolio managers, you know, ever in history. In fact, her her ARK fund, A-R-K-K is the ETF, was just accumulating assets at a record pace. And, and it actually achieved the record for for accumulating assets at the fastest pace on record. It was just everybody was piling into ARK. And, of course, then March of 2021 uh, came along, not 2020, but March of 2021, this year, where there was a decent tech route. And we saw companies that she was mostly investing in, companies like Tesla and Square and, and blockchain companies, et cetera, all getting you know fairly beaten up around the head and shoulders. And her, her fund began to underperform rather markedly. Well, the problem now is, is that her fund is negative in terms of returns for this year. She's now experiencing a lot of money outflows. People are giving up kind of on the, the, the I don't know how you, the, the praise of, of Kathy Wood. She was being hailed as almost a demigod in the investing world. And now all of a sudden she's kind of being, you know, thrown out, but kind of baby with a bathwater. But I, I wanted to kind of just touch on this very quickly because I do want to get to your uh, article about, you know, future returns and valuations. But I think this has a lot to do with that, you know, is that in every in speculative kind of investment bubble, we see these type of things where people just, you know, pile in to, to something in particular, and then it ceases to work. And we're seeing a lot of that kind of same psychology here. And, and I think kind of ARC is a good representation of that because, you know, that was the one thing everybody had to be in. And now it's it's a thing of the past, so to speak. And it'll be interesting to see how she turn if and when she can potentially, you know, turn her performance around, you know, considering where we are valuation wise and a lot of the companies that she owns. Right. She was in those tech companies that were soaring at the beginning of the year. She was momentum. So if you wanted to play momentum technology, you could just buy her fund, her ETF. It was a great way to do it. And it was it went even beyond buying her fund. Everyone's looking at what she owned, how much she was buying, what she was selling. And it was almost like what we see on Reddit and Wall Street bets and all that stuff. whatever whatever Kathy did, everyone else did. So it just made her bets look better and better. And she mm -hmm. had a great beginning to the year. But as we've talked about over and over again, this market is just shifting from one idea to another very quickly. And Kathy's idea is technology. It's new blossoming technology. And she really didn't sway from that, as she shouldn't, because that's what her fund is supposed to do. But when other things came into vogue, when financials and energy, old school Dow Jones type industries came into vogue, she was out of vogue. And right. what happens is, let's say Kathy's fund is a billion dollars and I have 100 million invested in her fund and I sell it. Her fund is now 900 million. Kathy has to sell 100 million of stocks. She can say, okay, I'm just going to sell Tesla, or she can sell 10% of everything. Right. And it's somewhere in between what she does. 
And that's what's that's part of the problem. And that's what's dragging down both some bad stocks and some very good stocks, and stocks think, that we've been looking at. Yeah, no, and that's a great point is that, you know, there's been a lot of headlines lately about her selling her Tesla shares. And, she, of course, she's a, a major advocate of Tesla. But it's not because she wants to sell Tesla. It's not because she's choosing to sell Tesla because of fundamentals or whatever. Uh, she's having to sell Tesla because it's one of the largest holdings in her fund. And so when somebody makes a $100 million redemption and there's been – you know, a lot of $100 million redemptions in her funds over the last several months. She's having to sell stocks to meet those redemptions, and that's putting pressure on her fund and and particularly on those underlying shares of the smaller companies that she's liquidating, companies like Square and others, uh, have been under a lot of pressure really since August of this year. Right, and if you want a place to go look for some good ideas, go look at her holdings because there are some really good stocks and good ideas in there that have gotten clobbered. And it's getting clobbered in part because of what's going on with Kathy Wood and the ARC Fund mm -hmm. and and her followers. So that's a good place to go fishing if you're looking for some names that have potential that are down 30, 40, 50 percent from prior highs. I want to switch gears here because you just said something that's important, and this relates to the, the market entirely. You know, when you're going to fish for, you know, opportunity, it's important to make sure that you're also buying fundamentals um, as well. So you got to you know, look for companies that have been beaten up in price, but have, you know, a strong fundamental case. Maybe they don't have a strong fundamental balance sheet at the moment because they're, you know, a rising, you know, kind of technology company, et cetera. But you need to be looking for increasing sales, increasing earnings, you know, those type of things that are going to be driving that stock in the future. Um, you know, it's important to consider that. But, you know, when you look at the market as a whole, and you just wrote a report on this uh, yesterday, it's on our website now, realinvestmentadvice.com, you know, asking the question, when you look at valuations today, it's very much like we were back in 1999. And, you know, this has some consequences, but you kind of approach this from a different angle saying, you know, you know, because even though valuations are the same as they were basically in 1999, are they really the same? Could you explain that a little bit better? Yeah. And what I want to preface this, this discussion with is this is why we talk about the Fed so much. So now we're going to go back to stocks. But by the time we're done, I think you're going to understand why, why we have to Think about the Fed, watch the Fed, listen to the Fed. So, you know, if you go back and look at 1999 to today, valuations in almost all cases today are higher than they were back then. So basically what you're saying is investors are paying more than they were in 1999. Forget prices, just valuations, ratios like price to earnings, price to sales. There's a handful of them, right? But that doesn't that's not that's not a fair statement on its own to say that we're more expensive than 99. What if I tell you that earnings are going to grow 20 percent for the next 20 years and the economy is going to boom and we're going to be in a utopian economy? Well, then stocks are probably very cheap right now. I don't care if they're at the same valuations as 99. The cash flows underneath all these companies is going to grow rapidly. Right. So so that's something to consider. However, when you go back and compare the economy, earnings growth, productivity growth, demographics, it's all worse. So all the tailwinds to growth are worse growth are worse today than they were back then. Now you add on a ton of debt. There wasn't that much debt in 99. In fact, the government ran a surplus, I believe, in 99 or 2000. You know, now we're running tri a trillion dollar deficit would be awesome if we could get it down to a trillion dollars. <laughs> it's only 2.8. So, I mean, who cares? It's just right, I don't think we're ever going to see that again. Right. Yeah. So the amount of debt, not the amount, but the amount of debt as a percentage of the economy is much higher than it was. So that's a burden on the economy. 
right? So you're paying not only, let's just say we're paying the same in valuations as 99, we're actually paying more because the economic outlook is weaker. And economic outlook translates to earnings. That's what you're buying. When you're buying Apple, you're buying a stream of future earnings. Tesla, name the company, that's ultimately what you're buying. So the question is, well, why would anyone pay valuations today that are on par with 1999, which turns out was grossly above where they should have been? The answer is the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is supplying massive amounts of liquidity to this market. So do valuations make sense? I, you know, I think you can make an argument. They make sense if you think the Federal Reserve can continue to do what they've been doing for the last 10 years. And that's why the Federal Reserve is so important. And Chairman Powell all of a sudden became a little bit more hawkish on inflation, telling us that he may speed up tapering, that they may bring interest rates forward a little bit, maybe to March instead of June, maybe do three or four instead of two or three rate hikes next year. Right. So all those do is take liquidity out of them. There's less. They're still pumping in liquidity, but they're pumping in less liquidity as they do less QE. And given that valuations don't make any sense, even if we were in 99, 1999's economic scenario and they make less sense today, they make sense in in the eyes of when you encompass everything, including the Fed. So that's why we follow the Fed closely, because it's liquidity that is keeping valuations where they are. And so. And let me ask you a question, you know, because we, we are talking about valuations where they are, which are elevated, obviously, but that has, you know, large implications about future returns, right? Right, right. So there's a very strong statistical correlation between where, where valuations are and what the returns for the future will be. The problem is those statistical correlations become very relevant, significant, the further out in time you move. So there's very low, if any, significant correlation between the returns for the next three months versus the valuation today. You know, like we always say, valuations are awful meaningful, but you can't use them to trade. Mm -hmm. They're really difficult to trade on, right? But you go out 20 years and the what's called the R squared, which measures how well valuations measure up against future returns is almost 80%. Right. It's 0 0.8, 0 0.79, I believe. <laughs> so, so what that allows you to do is say, okay, returns over the next 20 years are going to be poor, but we can also use use math, get a little creative and say, well, we know returns over the last 18 years were X, and we know what returns for the 20 years ending in 23 should have been. We can back into what returns for the next two years could be. There you go. And I appreciate that very much, Mike. And, of course, that article on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com, realinvestmentadvice.com. That wraps up the show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow with Financial Fitness Friday. Be sure you're by the website again and get rich for upcoming events, as well as go to those blogs and newsletters. And also check out our new simplevisor.com. That's coming out here over the next couple of weeks as well to help you manage your money better. All at the website, believe it or not, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you tomorrow. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.